Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is a nurse who was inspired by her mother's carer to take up the profession. She went on to do research on building online communities for patients with chronic illness. In this conversation, Michelle Lichman talks about the benefits and potential pitfalls of those communities. Here to tell her story is Michelle Lichman. Michelle, you're very welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be able to spend time with you today. I want to start with the thing that attracted my attention when we were introduced, and that is that you are a nurse. How did that come about? Why did you decide that you wanted to do nursing? For me, it started at a young age. When I was in middle school, my mom had tuberculosis, and it required that she have home health. And my mom is deaf, so she uses sign language to communicate. And when my dad was at work, the home health nurses would come, and I would interpret all of the health care that she needed to do to manage her tuberculosis at home. And that also always fascinated me that someone could go into the home and take care of somebody. And then later when I was in high school, my anatomy physiology teacher just happened to be a nurse also. And so she invited the entire class of high school students to apply for nursing school. And I thought, what a great opportunity. And so I did apply and was one of four people selected right out of high school to enter Weber State University's nursing school. I was 17 years old and started nursing school. And from there, I've just moved all the way forward to a PhD in nursing and have loved it. That's a very personal story. And I'm fascinated by your experiences when the nurse came to visit your mom. What was it about that interaction that was particularly appealing to you? For one, I felt like the nurse took the time that they, she needed to spend with my mom. And, you know, at the time, she didn't bring an interpreter. And this was prior to the American Disabilities Act. And so she didn't have an interpreter, but she worked with me in a way that made it so that I could do the best that I could to explain to my mom what was happening to her, the side effects of her medications, the things that she needed to do. And I felt like oftentimes healthcare visits are very rushed. And I felt like this nurse in particular took the time that she needed to make sure that me as a middle schooler understood what was happening to the best that I could so that I could then make sure my mom understood as well. And I know that's not the best scenario, but I think that it was the best scenario for the time that it was. And that's what really drove me into wanting to be a nurse. This concept of having the time is another very interesting part of the story, because that is not necessarily the experience of people in healthcare today. They don't often feel that their healthcare professional spent the time with them and certainly that's true of medicine as in doctoring it's less true of nursing nursing seems to have continued to invest time in people 
Can you say more about that? Was that something that was particularly important to you and to your mom? Absolutely. I feel like when you take the time to care, it says a lot about your intentions for that person and not just your intentions for them right in that moment, but long term. So if I just put a Band-Aid on you today and, and shoo you out the door, it tells a different story than if I really invest in making sure you understand all of your instructions so that you can be healthy later on in life. And so taking that time is, is so important. And I feel like there are different situations in which it's easier to maybe take the time to care. Home health is definitely one of those settings where people can do that. And I know that for me, in the jobs that I've selected to work in, I've always made sure that I've had enough minutes to take care of people and opted to go for a time-based model rather than an RVU, let's get as many people in the door as possible type of scenario, because I wanted to be happy with my position and with the patients that I was taking care of. So I chose that model. That's a fabulous context for what happened next, because clearly you then went on, as you said, to get your nursing degree, then to get a PhD. So where did your research lead you in the sense that were you able to reflect that philosophy in the research that you were doing? Absolutely. So early on, my research really focused on the social context of diabetes self-management. And with that, I started seeing that people were going online more and more. And in the research I did initially, I conducted a survey and some interviews with people who were using the diabetes online community. So they were seeking out other individuals who were also living with diabetes. And I wanted to know why. Why did they do that? Was it helpful to them? And the survey that we conducted, we found that people who were highly engaged were more likely to have an A1C of less than seven. And also we found that people were really seeking informational support, emotional support, and in some instances, tangible support where people would provide goods of sorts to individuals. So here in America, insulin is very expensive. And later on, one of the research projects that I conducted identified that there's this underground exchange of diabetes medications and supplies where if somebody can't afford something, that they could go online and find other individuals who were willing to share either through a donation or through a borrow, maybe you can use my use this bottle of insulin if you replace it next week when you get your paycheck and you can buy another one. So there was this really kind of exchange that was happening. And I think that surprised a lot of individuals. It surprised lawmakers. And here in Utah, some of that data was used to support a bill called HB 207, which capped the cost of insulin here in Utah to $30 a prescription per month. And I know that there have been similar legislation across the country, and it's not just my research that did that, but I know that it contributed because I think that this concept of people going online to this underground market to try and get their insulin was really surprising to people. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. 
first of all, congratulations on that piece of legislation. And I appreciate it wasn't just your research, but it was a really important step forward to making care affordable for people who needed it most. I want to explore this a little bit more with you because you started out your career in the context of a relationship between a nurse and a patient and the health practitioner spending time with that patient and then of course improved the outcome or supported that patient through a very difficult time in their lives. You've pivoted then to patients supporting each other and that fascinates me. What made you feel that this was an area that was of particular interest to you? One of the things that I realized early on as a nurse practitioner was that I could spout textbook things to people and I could use my past experiences with patients to try to help somebody. But in some instances, that wasn't enough. And I remember a 19-year-old coming to me and when I asked her, what's something that would help you with your diabetes? And she actually said, I wish I knew one other person who was my age that also had diabetes because she had never gone to camp, diabetes camp, like a lot of people who are young do. And she had never met anybody else. And I think that that really says how important peers who have a similar condition are. And you can have a great healthcare provider, but sometimes there's another piece that's missing that somebody needs to feel like they're getting kind of that holistic care. They feel like you can't see them on their same level. And another person with diabetes could, they could understand them in a way that a healthcare provider can't. And for that reason, peer support has a lot of power. It does have a lot of power, you're right. And we're hearing this repeatedly from our patient advocate friends and and patients generally, that it's patients like me that make the biggest difference to how I feel about this particular situation. But therein lies the seeds of a revolution because really we are now entering a world where we're so connected with one another that healthcare is almost co-piloting with patients and patient advocates in terms of helping people through those periods in their lives. Is that something that has been borne out in your research? I feel like the research that I've done has, has helped to contribute. I think that there's also different systems that are more willing to engage with peer support systems. I know that in the VA system that's local in my area, they've hired like peer navigators to really help individuals navigate the VA system. And I know that in my own system, we're doing more and more research in this area. For example, I right now am working on a study where we actually not only took somebody who has diabetes and tried to have them engage with another person with diabetes, but we tried to match them in some way. Because we know that two people with diabetes aren't automatically best friends just because they have diabetes. There's something else that kind of pulls them together. And so we're in early stages of matching individuals. And so we've piloted a matching system where there are different characteristics that people could request to be matched on, sort of a match.com for diabetes, if you will. And um, it's really working well. And really in this pilot, we wanted people to improve social support. 
And what we found was not only did they improve social support, but we got a signal for improved A1C as well. And so there's something valuable here. And so right now what we're doing is we're expanding this work, but in an emerging adult population. So that's that 18 to 30 year old population. And so right now we're in the middle of piloting it in that particular population because we've got some funding that's specific to that age group. I think that there's so much more that can be done with peer support, and yet we do have some healthcare systems or healthcare providers that get nervous about peer support. And in all the research that I've done, peer support has never been a replacement for a healthcare provider. It's always been an augment to a healthcare provider. You're right. I mean, if we go back to our analogy, we're talking about co-piloting. We're not talking about sending the pilot to the back of the plane and saying, we're now flying this thing, which may not be the safest thing to do. But I'm fascinated by this idea of blind dating or speed dating for diabetes. And also that you've been working with the younger population. I get the younger population because young people are usually very much more connected online than the older population. But I read somewhere, some of your researches suggest that's not necessarily untrue of older people. Absolutely. I feel like more and more older people are getting online and and becoming connected, especially with COVID. I think COVID forced people to be a little bit more connected than maybe they were prior. And older people can benefit from diabetes online communities in a similar way to younger individuals. And in fact, if you think about how some older adults might experience loneliness, the diabetes online community could potentially be a buffer to help with some of that loneliness that they might be experiencing. And I also think about individuals who live in more isolated areas, maybe rural areas, or maybe they don't have access to receiving diabetes education on a regular basis. They might not have access to an endocrinologist. And so those people have access to information online in these spaces that they might not otherwise have access to. That's really important to be able to reach a broader audience and make sure that they have enough information about diabetes to take care of themselves. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. Two things you said there that really I've underlined in my notes. Number one was the concept that COVID was a game changer. And there's no question that there were occasions during the pandemic, certainly in our part of the world, where people couldn't access healthcare quite as easily because if you had symptoms, you were asked not to attend your regular doctor until you'd had PCRs to confirm that you didn't have COVID. And the other thing you said was rural areas because you're right, in those far out communities where traveling long distances was not recommended in difficult times of the pandemic, definitely people were more connected. Did you see the burgeoning of these communities at the time of the pandemic, but also now much more accelerated growth of those in rural areas? 
I would say that there's definitely more individuals who are interested in learning more from online peers in rural areas. I've seen that clinically as we've been delivering diabetes education by telehealth to rural Colorado. We've he been hearing more and more from those individuals that they're very interested in the diabetes online community space. I'll also add that there are two other populations that have been growing in the diabetes online community space. The first is the Spanish-speaking population, and there's supports for that through different entities. But I think even locally here in Utah, there's been more interest in obtaining information from a diabetes online community that we developed as a research team. And I know that not only did we provide diabetes education, but we made sure that people understood the resources that were available during the pandemic and where they could make sure that they had Utah food bank drop-offs, that they understood where to get the technology for their children during COVID when they had to do homeschooling. And so our online community that we developed was not only a space to learn about diabetes, but it became the trusted place for this small group of people on how to manage COVID. The second group that I wanna talk about is the deaf and hard of hearing population. So the deaf and hard of hearing population, I mentioned earlier, my mom is deaf and I actually have five other deaf family members, some aunts and uncles. And the deaf population has really increased in how they're using online spaces as well to support help. And there's a great diabetes online community that is really using what they call ASL blogs. So these are video blogs that are in sign language. So instead of reading a bunch of text, it's usually watching a short video of someone signing and then occasionally responses are short text or other videos. And it's been amazing to see this community supporting one another and it's group a group of individuals with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, as well as pre-diabetes. And so they're all kind of coming together to support one another in, and really the thing that unifies them is language. In some ways, you're describing a world that'll never go back to the way it was, because it sounds like it is such a powerful tool that you almost can't imagine the world without it. Is, is that what people are telling you? Absolutely, because I feel like it's not just the information that you're getting, but it's the connections to other people that you're receiving as well. And I know I've heard of some people decreasing their use from an, a diabetes online community, but that typically happens when they've developed such a strong relationship with somebody that they've taken that relationship into the real world where they'll call people or they'll text people, or in some instances, they might actually meet up. And so it's been interesting to see as people shift from moving to the online space, in, in some instances, they may actually shift to meeting in the real world and maybe relying less on the online space because they've made a real life connection. Speed dating doesn't end there, does it? Some people do connect and then go on to actually have a relationship with somebody in the real quote unquote world. But the market for online groups must be huge because the proportion of people with multimorbidity, with chronic illness, and with the risk factors for chronic illness is now almost exponential, isn't it? Absolutely. And I feel like there's subgroups within a greater diabetes online community. So we know that we have different types of diabetes. We have gestational diabetes, type 1, type 2, and so on. 
And so those create subgroups. And then beyond that, there are subgroups where people might be interested in a specific type of exercise. So people who want to be runners and they want to really run a marathon, they, they belong to a different subgroup than someone who might be using a specific technology like an insulin pump or a continuous glucose monitor. So we have this larger diabetes online community and then these sub-communities within that larger online space. Other than diabetes, have you seen this develop in other chronic conditions? Absolutely. I don't study other chronic conditions, but I've definitely seen it. So breast cancer is definitely a big one. And I know that there's definitely communities in more rare conditions. And of course, those spaces will have fewer people in them because diabetes, there's so many people that have diabetes worldwide. But I think that those communities, especially in the rare conditions, can maybe even be more powerful because the condition is so uncommon. More uncommon means that it's likely you're going to need a co-pilot when you go and see your health provider because they're not necessarily going to have the answers as much as the people who are actually living with the condition. Michelle, where to from here for you? You've talked about the diabetes community, you've talked about the deaf community. Is there somewhere you want to take your career next? One thing that I would love to see is that we're using not only peers to support individuals with chronic conditions, but we're finding a way to pay for them because it's great that we have these systems that are building blocks for people, but some people might need a little extra support. And if you think about someone like a community health worker who helps someone navigate, not, not only as a peer through the health system and through their condition, but they do so much more. In some instances, they could even do home visits. They can do extra things. And I wish that insurance would cover different types of peer support so that we can adequately pay the individuals who provide it. Because without that, without these peer support structures, we lose so much information. We lose so much connection. And so if there's a way to keep that going, uh, some sort of way to sustain it, I think that would be absolutely wonderful. I also feel like there needs to be a system where if you typed in certain characteristics about yourself that were really important, this matching idea that we have, if, if you could type your information into a system and then it pops up different individuals or communities that would match for you, that would be a game changer because a lot of times I've done some research where we made a general diabetes online community available to somebody, but they had a hard time. Some, some people had a hard time navigating to the right person. And so while they got some diabetes basics, they all gained some sort of diabetes information. Some people weren't able to connect to another person without extra guidance. And when we've done focus groups about this, it's really someone needs to help navigate them to the right spot for them. And so if we can pay someone to be that navigator, that would be absolutely critical. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare.
I can see the value of that. I can see the sense of it because people do give so much of themselves online for free and it often is at a cost because they're donating time. Parking the idea that commercializing can be damaging as well. Let's talk about the other more worrying thing about this and that is giving people information or sharing information about yourself which is once it's out in the ether it's out in the ether and it can be abused. How do we protect patients from the notion that once they've given so much of themselves in an online forum that that's not going to come back to compromise them in other areas of their lives? That's such an important topic because there are certain communities that are a little bit more private than others. And then there's something like Twitter, which very few people are listed as private. And people share all types of information about themselves. Sometimes their lab levels, sometimes the medications they're on, and and either and symptoms as well. And so I think it's really important that people understand what is not available just to who they think is seeing it, but other people who potentially could be seeing it as well. And trying to find safe spaces for them to talk to other individuals who have their same condition. The other thing I want to, I'm a little bit cautious of, and it's because I have a child myself, I am always asking my child about things that I could potentially post on social media that reflect my child. And in some instances, he says, no, don't post that. And so I have a dialogue with him and I know that there are parents who need help and also parents who might be posting things about their children or another person, maybe their spouse or a friend or another loved one without their their permission. And so I think that we just need to be careful about that. It, it makes me think of another study that we did focus on GoFundMe. And when we scraped all the GoFundMe campaigns for those who were requesting insulin, we found that most of the time it was another person posting personal information about somebody else without their permission. And in some instances, they would say, so-and-so would be so upset if they knew that I posted this information about them. And so it's, it's not just you being cautious about what you post about yourself, but also understanding that someone else could definitely post information about you as well. And I don't know that I have a solution for it, but I think people need to be aware of the, what, what can happen. I do wonder whether that's another role that should be funded is to offer groups some guidance, legal and more pragmatic advice about what shouldn't, shouldn't happen. Because it isn't clear to everybody when they go online that the group they're seeing, the faces they're seeing on a Zoom call aren't the only people who may be listening to what they're saying. Their employer could be or somebody else who has maybe less positive view of what's going on. But that said, the cat is out of the bag. We cannot roll back this technology and there's no question that a solution will be found because a solution has to be found in order for us to progress with the great benefits that online communities provide to patients and health providers. Where do you think we will be in the next five years, taking all of this into account? I think that we're going to start to see health systems that 
embrace the concept of peer support even more and build out ways for the patients who receive care within that system to be able to access peer support. And it systems typically care about the patients within their system or potential patients within their system. And so I could see that there's some fragments of there's online communities within a specific system. But I do feel that in some ways there's benefit to that. There's benefit to having someone within your own system who knows how to navigate the system that you're in, who knows how, where all the specialty resources are for podiatry or for wound care, if, you, if that's something that you happen to need. And so even building out systems locally could have a lot of benefit because there's extra resources right in the neighborhood that people can access. Michelle Lichman, the person I admire the most actually is the nurse who cared for your mom because she inspired you to use your talents and your energy to make a difference to patients the world over. We in Australia hear you loud and clear. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like or share this conversation to amplify the voice of patients, patient advocates and clinicians. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.